Well, I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at Colossians chapters 3 through 8 this morning. Colossians 1, 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit, as it is also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father. I give you thanks for the manifest fruit of the gospel in the lives of my brothers and sisters here in this church. For their faith, for their love, and for their evident hope. And yet, Father, we also know that we need to continue to grow in these things. We have a continuing desire to be more and more Christ-like. And to see the gospel continue to spread and its impact continue to uh, cause us to grow in our fruitfulness. Lord, we want to, to be a church that is clearly conformed to you and to your likeness. We want to grow to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Lord, being characterized not just by a balanced budget and and buildings and programs and a large staff, but Lord, one that's far more importantly characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, sacrifice, generosity. Lord, we we want to be a joyful people. And Lord, we see that there are so many different ways that we need to grow. And we pray that you would use your word this morning to continue to both encourage us and strengthen us and challenge us so that we might see how we need to grow and that you would be gracious to produce growth. And Lord, if there's anyone among us who is yet to to truly experience the transformative work of the gospel, to truly believe Lord, anybody that's just going through the motions, either willfully or just because they've never understood, we pray that today would be the day of salvation, that you would be merciful to them even as you've been merciful to us, that they too might experience the real fruit that the gospel produces. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, Paul's point in this introductory paragraph to his letter to the Colossians is to encourage them regarding the evidence of the gospel's transformative work in their life. He wants to encourage them of the fruitful evidence of the gospel. And he does this because he knows that they're struggling with some doubt. And this is something that many Christians have struggled with throughout history, all the way back to the church in Colossae, but even up to this day. Many people wonder, how can I know that I'm truly saved? That I'm really a Christian, that I'm not just going through the motions. And the primary answer that the Bible has for that question is to look for evidence. What is the evidence of the gospel in a person's life? What is the fruit? As Jesus declared on the Sermon on the Mount, you will know them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit and every unhealthy tree bears bad fruit. Now notice that Paul here in Colossians doesn't just offer a general assurance and say, hey, you once prayed a prayer, you once walked an aisle, you once were a part of a, of a great revival. But he actually points to instead specific evidences of the gospel's impact in their life. Namely, faith in Christ, love for all the saints, hope of a guaranteed future inheritance. And then he goes on to explain this is because the nature of the gospel is to produce fruit. And he explains how that's seen even in the midst of the Colossians. I want to look, first of all, at the fruit of the gospel in the Colossians' life, and particularly the fruit of faith. But before we get there, notice again in chapter 3 that he begins, chapter 3, sorry, chapter 1, verse 3, he begins by saying that he thanks God every time he comes to pray for the Colossians. Now, that's a remarkable statement in and of itself, because just, just think about what comes to mind when you pray for our country. When you're having your devotions and you want to pray for our nation and its leaders. Are you compelled to just give thanks? Or do other things come to your mind? Frustration. Grief. Fear. Or just consider even praying for your family. Every time you think of the needs of your family, are you just compelled to give thanks? Or do other things come in? The the pains, the hurts, the griefs, the sorrows, fears. This is a, a remarkable thing that every time Paul comes to pray, the first thing that comes to his mind is lists of reasons to give thanks for God's work in their life. I mean, he is genuinely encouraged by what he has heard about the Colossian church. And so he's not writing because he's concerned about some problems in the midst of the Colossians that he needs to address and rebuke them for. Rather, what he's concerned about is external threats. He's really encouraged by what he sees. He thinks this is a pretty healthy church, and he's going to give reasons for that. At the same time, he knows they're vulnerable. And so he wants them to know how they can keep themselves safe and to not be um, troubled by these false teachings that are trying to invade the church. What particularly encourages Paul, as he explains in this chapter, is the evidence of the gospel's transformative effect in the Colossian believers. And specifically, he points out their faith hope and love. Let's look first of all at their faith in Christ. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ, Jesus, we give thanks. Now, when many people think of the word faith, they think of faith in a very general sense. Almost, they almost think of faith as being a whimsical idea. Very general uh, as is as manifest in the statements like, we need to keep the faith. Uh, have faith in yourself. Keep on believing. Such statements are not tied to faith in anything in particular. In fact, they're just tied to faith in faith. And this is like trusting in a rope to hold you when that rope isn't attached to anything else. It's, it's empty. And so to have faith in such a thing is actually a foolish activity. How can one just have faith in faith? For faith to have any sort of impact or substance in a person's life, it's got to be connected to something substantial, something objective. And here we see that the Colossians' faith isn't just faith in itself. It's faith in Christ. Their faith is tied to the rock of Christ. And they trust in Christ because of what has been revealed about Christ 
in his word. Biblical faith is inextricably tied to the word of God and the promise of God. Now, recognize that biblical faith isn't just simply belief that God exists. Or even that Jesus is God. Those are true statements, but biblical faith believes far more than that. It really, biblical faith believes all that's been revealed in the word of God. The reason we believe Jesus is God and that God exists is because of what the word of God reveals to us. It believes all that God has revealed in his word as true and trustworthy. And a good illustration of such biblical faith is seen in the life of Abraham. This is something that, that Talia pointed out in our, in our youth meeting last night. The faith of Abraham is remarkable. In Hebrews 11, verse 17, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, he considered that God was even able to raise him up from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, notice Abraham was willing to offer up his only son for a reason, and it wasn't just faith in itself. It was faith in a very particular promise. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And Abraham realized if God said through Isaac, my offspring will be named. If Isaac dies here on this altar, God will bring him back to life because God has said it. If God said it, it's true. And I believe it. And he was willing to act on that faith. That's biblical faith. And that's the example of biblical faith we see throughout Scripture. Biblical faith is tied to what God has revealed in his word. Unless our faith is tied to something on the other end. When the storms of life hit us, the loss of loved ones, um, permanent illness, we're going to be shaken and we're going to be destroyed. Remember how Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven twenty four. He said, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. His point is. If you have your faith fixed on the promise of God, on Christ's words as revealed in the Bible, then when the storms of life hit, you will be preserved. But if your faith is in some other vain thing, some silly song or some empty religion, it's not going to sustain you when life really hits. And Christ wants us to be sustained. And Paul's encouraged by the Colossians because he sees such faith in their life. And he commends them for their faith, but he also commends them for their love. He says, in the love that you have for all the saints. Now, just like biblical faith needs to be defined in contrast to how our culture defines faith, biblical love needs to be defined as well. Because when we think of love in our culture, we tend to think of romantic love. You know, ooey gooey, rich and chewy feeling you have for your spouse or your girlfriend or boyfriend. But biblical faith doesn't revert to sentimentality. It, it speaks to a steadfast commitment to do what is best for the object of your love. Whether that object is your spouse, your children, or your enemy. Now, it's often accompanied by feelings of affection, but it's, it's primarily manifested in the choices that a person makes. Biblical love is seen in the choices that we make, not in how we feel. As Jesus told his disciples, if you love me, 
You'll, you'll feel strong feelings for me. You'll want to sing. You'll, you, you'll, you'll do what? You'll obey my commandments. It's manifested in the choices we make. This is also how God expresses his love for us. God doesn't just have strong affection for his children, though he does. He demonstrates his love through acting on our behalf. Right? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he, he gave his only begotten son. He didn't just feel strong feelings. He didn't just smile. He sacrificed because he did what was best for the object of his love. At great, extreme cost to himself. That's biblical love. And Paul says he sees such love in them for all the saints. See, the the Colossians don't just have love for one another and love for those in their family, but for all the saints. They have, they have stronger affection for their fellow believers, some whom they've probably never met, than they do probably for other people in their own family. Because they share the same core convictions and affections. They might be from different races, and we know they were, from different uh, economic backgrounds. Some were probably slaves. Some were probably masters. In fact, they were Onesimus and Philemon. They had different life experiences, and yet they would generally be willing to sacrifice their own interests for the sake of these other brothers and sisters. People they barely even knew. Because of the work of the gospel in their life. And in fact, in ancient history, the the early church was known primarily for its love. One story uh, comes to us. Uh, from uh, regarding some Christians who were captured by some barbarians in North Africa. And the churches to which they were belonged uh, weren't able to have enough money to ransom these members of their church. And so they came to the capital city in the area, Alexandria, and, and they sent deputies to ask um, Cyprian, who was the bishop of the Church of Alexandria, for help. And when Cyprian heard about what had happened, he personally sent messages to all the churches in the region telling them what happened and soliciting money to redeem the captives. And when all the money was collected, he then forwarded that the sum of money with a letter to them. And he writes, in cases like these, who would not feel sorrow and who would not look upon a brother's sufferings as his own? As the apostle says, when one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Therefore, we must consider the captivity of our brethren as our own captivity. We must see Christ in our captive brethren and redeem him from captivity who redeemed us from death. That's the right view of the body of Christ. And Paul says he sees such love in the Colossians. He sees genuine faith he sees genuine love but he also sees a a confident hope he says because of the hope laid up for you in heaven now again just like faith and hope biblical hope also needs to be properly defined because in our culture hope is often uh, understood as a wish or a strong desire that something would take place. But biblical hope is something quite different. Biblical hope refers to something you can have firm confidence in. Not something you just want to happen, but something you know is going to happen. And such is our heavenly hope. A couple of verses to consider regarding biblical hope. Romans eight twenty three. Paul writes, we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. He's confident that the, his, the, the body is going to be resurrected, redeemed. 1 John 3, verse 2. We know that when he appears, speaking of Jesus... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him 
purifies himself just as he is pure. Also, 1 Peter 1.3. Peter writes that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, you'll notice that in all three of those verses that I read, the hope that is being described is confidence in what God has promised us in heaven. All of that hope is future. Our hope that we have in the gospel is primarily a future hope. And it doesn't mean we don't have hope for tomorrow. We can't have confidence that you know, things are probably going to go well for us. We can have confidence in God's love. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. But we can't have hope that we're going to live tomorrow. Because the Bible doesn't promise that. We can't have hope that we're not going to face extreme loss or extreme pain. That we're ever going to be healed. Because the Bible doesn't promise those things. But it does promise that one day there will be no, no more sorrow, no more fear, no more pain. But that promise is still laid up for us in heaven. And that's why Paul says our hope is laid up. That, that word refers to something that is appointed for a person to receive in the future. In fact, it's even translated appointed in the book of Hebrews. It is, a, it is appointed for man to die once and after that face judgment. It's the same word. It's, it refers um, to, to something like an inheritance or money from a trust. Something that a person is guaranteed to receive. They can expect is going to happen. This is how it's used by Jesus in Matthew 6 when he says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven that you'll receive in the future, right? Where no moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. Similarly, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but for all who've loved his appearing. These are things that are going to be received in the future. They're ours now. But we don't get to enjoy them now. We will enjoy them yet in the future. So the Christian's hope is primarily fixed in heaven. And all the blessings that we will receive when we rise from the dead. So what does a person look like who is gripped by such biblical hope today? We can understand what love for all the saints looks like. But how do we how do we know if we have such biblical hope? How did Paul know the Colossians had it? Well, here's some ideas. A person gripped by biblical hope is more focused on their heavenly investments, right? Lay up treasures in heaven rather than earthly investments. Doesn't mean they don't have earthly investments. We we should and we do. But primarily our concern is not what's going on here on earth, but How am I investing in eternal things? They're more focused on pleasing Christ than on pleasing people. They're more concerned with Christ's name being honored rather than their own name being honored. And they're content in their circumstances because they remember this is just temporal. Even the best things in life we now have will one day fade away. Either they themselves will fall apart and be destroyed or we ourselves will because we're just dust. A few years ago, I came across this story that was told by a pastor who was serving in the West Indies during the 19th century. And he tells of a sugar boiler who was probably a slave who was dreadfully afflicted for years from an infection that he incurred while boiling sugar. A drop of boiling sugar fell upon his arm and an infection broke out and it, it spread. Spread, to his arm, spread down his arm to the effect that his, his fingers actually fell off. And the infection then spread to his head and his eyes fell out and even pieces of his skull. And then his feet became infected and they came off. And the pastor writes that he bore all this with remarkable patience. At times even rejoice in the hope of being received to that place where there's no death 
neither sorrow nor crying. And the pastor said that the last time that he visited him, quote, I could not bear to look upon him, but only talked and prayed with him at his chamber door. When I asked how he was, he said he was just waiting the Lord's time when he should please to call for him. The man said, Master, two hands are gone. Two eyes are gone. Two feet are gone. There's no more of this carcass here. No, Master, the pain is sometimes too strong for me. I'm obliged to cry out and pray to the Lord for his assistance. End quote. Pastor writes that when he came to, to close his life, the man exhorted all about him to be sure to live to God, and especially for his wife, who had remained with him all the time of his affliction. But she continued faithful, and he died happy, exhorting her to live to God. And such is the power of the gospel in a person's life, that they are willing to rejoice in incredibly painful and grievous circumstances. Not because of the circumstance, they are confident the circumstances are going to get better. It's because their hope is not in tomorrow being better. It's in the fact that one day they will be restored, fully redeemed, and rise in the likeness of their Redeemer. And this is because it's the nature of the gospel to produce such amazing fruit. And that's what Paul continues to explain in verse 5. When he says of this, you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. And the first thing we see here is that the fruitfulness of the gospel is evident and that it spreads easily. You think of diseases, contagion spreading easily like COVID. Well, the gospel similarly just spreads as people hear it. It spreads throughout the whole world already, Paul has said. Paul recognized that God's plan of redemption wasn't just limited to the Jews, but in fact, God had always planned for when the Messiah came, that he would not only save his people, but he would also provide salvation for people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In fact, Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. In fact, the book of Luke ends with a very similar declaration. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So God is always designed for this gospel to spread. It's, it's the inherent nature of the gospel to spread like a virus, but a good virus, a very good virus. And wherever it takes root, wherever the gospel takes root, there it begins to bear fruit as well. It grows bearing fruit. Paul says it's bearing fruit and it's increasing. And he's drawing on Jesus' imagery of the work of the gospel being like seed that is sown. We, we saw this in Mark chapter 4 in the scripture reading. Right? Jesus said the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He, he, has, he, he doesn't know how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade and the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. The point is, the gospel is going to produce on its own. It doesn't need a farmer. It doesn't need help. Now, God chooses to use means, and the means of gospel production is often people through proclaiming the gospel, through um, living out the gospel. But the gospel in and of itself doesn't need help. It's powerful in and of itself to produce fruit. That's the point here. In fact, the farmer doesn't even know how it produces fruit. And certainly the farmer can't take credit for the fruit that's produced. 
power is in the seed, not the sower. The power of the gospel is also seen in its immediate impact. Notice he says, as it also does among you since the day you heard it. When a person believes the gospel, they are immediately transformed into a new creature. Immediately. Their heart is changed. Their desires are changed. They truly want to live for God above everything else. Right? As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A radical transformation has taken effect when a person believes the gospel. It's what the Bible calls regeneration. And it's not just believing a couple truths. It's not just changing some commitments in your life. It is a miracle that takes place. A person truly becomes a new creature in the, in the same way their inward thought and mind is changed. Just like when, you, when Jesus Christ rises from the dead, his flesh was radically changed. The difference is for the believer, it's just an inward transformation that will be completed at the resurrection. But it's still no less miraculous than the resurrection itself. And Paul points out that the immediate effect of the gospel in their lives happened. He points that out to them because he wants to counter any doubts that they might have that maybe they didn't receive the right information. Because it seems like that's what's going on here in Colossians. Primarily, as we'll see from Jews in the area who are probably suggesting, well, you don't really know the Bible well enough to have confidence that you truly are saved. How do you know that you're actually interpreting the Word of God rightly when you've just all of a sudden come into this knowledge? How can you trust the source? How do you know that this change in your life isn't just some emotional experience that you're having? Well, just imagine purchasing a tomato plant from your garden from a reputable nursery. And within just a few days, it starts to sprout. And bear tomatoes abundantly. And your, your, your neighbor, your envious neighbor, sees this, a little disgruntled because his garden isn't producing any fruit. And he comes over and says, you know that plant? Yeah, it looks like it's producing fa- fruit, but it's a fake. It's probably poisonous fruit. You can't trust where you got that plant from. Look, and I'm a gardener. I've been gardening for years, and I can see a fake fruit. I can see a fake plant. But then you have another neighbor who comes over to you, a little more trustworthy neighbor, who reassures you by pointing out the obvious. Look it, your plant is bearing tomatoes. Eat the tomato. Taste it. It's real. It's substantial. Don't listen to this guy. He's just envious. And he doesn't even know what a real tomato plant is. He doesn't even know how to plant tomatoes. Look at his garden. It's dead. That's what Paul is saying here. Look at the fruit, Colossians. Look at the fruit. It's evident. You've been transformed. Don't question the validity of the gospel you've heard because it's obviously real. Look at your life. And the power of the gospel is connected to its truthfulness. Notice that Paul describes the gospel in verse 6 as the grace of God in truth. It's not some newfangled teaching that a couple radicals decided they'd come up with. Twelve men that were disgruntled with their lives and they thought, well, you know, being fishermen isn't the life for us. Let's let's be known for false teachers. As if those men could have come up with such amazing good news on their own. No, they believed it because it's true. And it corresponds to everything God had revealed previously in the Old Testament. And Paul's point in describing the gospel as the grace of God and truth is just to assert that what they heard from Epaphras from the very beginning was the truth. It's not some false teaching, some corruption, some new cult. God is truly gracious and the message you heard was true. 
You you have no reason to doubt, he's saying, to doubt that that God really wants to save Gentiles and you in particular. In fact, it's always been his desire to save the Gentiles. Even though these people are telling you that it can't be true, it can't be real. It is the truth. God is a gracious God and the gospel is real. And he provides further assurance for them when he notes that they first heard it from a highly credible source. He says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Again, his point in verse 7 regarding Epaphras is, is to demonstrate that what he told them was accurate. They weren't misguided by him, nor did he fail to mention any critical information that they might be missing out on. Again, the Colossians apparently were being approached by Jews in the area who were challenging the trustworthiness of the gospel. And Paul's affirming that what they heard from Epaphras was complete. And so they have nothing to be concerned about from these false teachers, these skeptics. But you can understand why they'd be wondering if they're missing out on something. Because this is new to them. Again, many of them were Gentiles. They weren't familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And so somebody who was, whose culture had for thousands of years studied these scriptures, you could understand why they would have questions. If these experts are saying, well, uh, you know, I'm not sure what you're being told is accurate. I mean, just think whenever you're in a new situation, you're naturally apprehensive. You don't know if a person is going to take advantage of you. I mean, just think about when you go to a foreign country. Who are the people you can trust? Is this waiter, you know, going to, you know, yanking my chain? Is he, you know, exploiting my ignorance as a tourist? You go to a new school. You don't know who are the students that I can trust. Who are the students that are providing a good example? How do I know that I'm doing the right thing so I'm not making a fool of myself and I'm not going to fail? When, when you're in a new situation, you don't know necessarily what to believe. And you could be taken advantage of. And so if somebody points out, hey, you're being taken advantage of, you're going to, well, maybe I am. And you're going to ask this question. That's what's going on in the Colossians. How do we know that what we heard from Epaphras is true? Well, Paul says he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. We need to recognize that, that, that this is the highest praise any Christian could ever hope to receive. This isn't just some light commendation. Right? Proverbs 26. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Right? All of the, the apostles who followed Christ for three years, proclaimed their steadfast love. And they all fell away. But a faithful man who can find. 1 Corinthians 4.2, Paul says, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. To be considered faithful is the highest praise that any servant of Christ can ever achieve. Just, just remember the parable of the talents. Right? What is... What does the master say to each of those servants who invested well? Well done, good and faithful servant. And of course, for the one who didn't. Now, he didn't lose any money. But he said, you know, depart from me, you wicked and worthless slave. Because he wasn't faithful. Even though he didn't lose anything. He didn't take any risk. But that's the point. He wasn't faithful. And that this, this commendation of Epaphras as a faithful servant of Christ is akin to a formal recommendation that Epaphras receive this, a spiritual medal of honor. Right? The highest commendation that any soldier or sailor, marine could ever achieve 
is the Congressional Medal of Honor. Well, Paul is saying, this is Paul's recommendation that Epaphras deserves this spiritually. It's high commendation. And this is because we can produce no spiritual fruit on our own. Right? We don't produce anything. We saw that in uh, Mark chapter 4. Like the gospel produces fruit on its own. The sower, the servant, is merely a vessel. As Paul told the Corinthians, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. Right? We're, we're merely vessels for the Spirit of God to work through. We can't boast in anything. And therefore, the greatest thing any Christian can achieve is simple faithfulness. I love Luke 17, where Jesus tells a story. Who of you has a servant that comes in, right, and does his job, you know, stands up and commends the servant? He says, likewise, you know, when you have done what I've asked you to do, we'll say we've only done what we've been told. We've just done our job. We don't deserve commendation. And yet, to be considered faithful, therefore, is the highest commendation any Christian throughout history, throughout the world, the highest praise you could ever receive as a Christian, as a human being, therefore, is to be faithful. And Paul has said, Epaphras is a faithful minister on your behalf. And this is why Paul summarizes summarizes his life ambition in Acts 20.24 as this. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, that's all that matters to me, that I would do my job. That's his highest ambition. Because he knows nothing else matters but faithfulness. And so it's, it's worthwhile to ask, what hinders a servant from being faithful? Well, I think, first of all, it, it could just be ignorance. They don't know what's expected of them. Either because they've, they've never read, in Christian terms, they've never read the Bible They've never took it upon themselves and they've never sat under biblical teaching. Maybe it's not even their fault. They're young in the faith. Or it could be that they just don't understand the trustworthy character of God. Maybe again because of poor teaching. And this was the case in the parable of the talents. Another reason could be doubt. That they question the validity or goodness of the instructions that they receive. Like, is it what I heard real? Is this really what's best? Can I trust this? Is this really the right thing to do? Rivalry is a common hindrance, especially in our culture. The the spirit of competition. This happens when servants are more focused on outdoing one another, proving that they're a better servant than another servant, rather than just simply being faithful to what they've been asked to do. distractions right they, they just allow their attention to be drawn to lesser things another another common one you see this in the workplaces discontentment self-pity the feeling that you're not getting as good a shake as the next person right they, they focus on what they don't have rather than what they do have and they allow their circumstances to drive their motivations rather than just simply being committed to what they've been asked to do, right? Opposition and adversity just become excuses that they can use to be lazy, to not be faithful. Finally, misalignment. At the end of the day, their goals are just very different from their masters, right? They may be doing their job, but they're not doing their job for the reason and for the purpose that they're Masters appointed them to their position. Right? They mistake their personal ambitions for their 
as the master's ambitions. And so they devote themselves to really what are their priorities and are actually ignoring what the master's priorities are. And they just tell themselves, well, this must be what the master wants. And all these things can distract us. But the point here is that Epaphras was not distracted by any of these things. He wasn't hindered by any of these things. But even so, notice that Paul compots by turning back to what this faithful man reported about the Colossians. His point is to tell the Colossians that, yes, Epaphras is a faithful man. And you know what he told me? This faithful man who's trustworthy. He's pointed out that there is clear evidence of your love for one another. He has made known to us, verse 8, he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Right? There's evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Epaphras sees it. I see it. It's clear. And it's a genuine spirit-wrought love that, that proves that you've been supernaturally transformed. You don't love the things you once loved. You don't do the things you once do. You have been changed. And so you can know. You can have assurance. There's evidence, brothers and sisters, of the gospel's work in your life. Don't be shaken by the lies that want to take you down. One conclusion I think the question we should ask ourselves is, well, can the same be said of us? Is there fruit of the gospel in our life? And if so, what is that fruit? Is there confidence in the promise of God's word manifested in the choices that we make? Or do the choices we make just demonstrate that we believe everything else in the world, everything that everybody else in the world believes? Or is it clear that, no, we're making choices based upon our confidence in what the Word of God has proclaimed? And we can point to verses that we've relied upon in those situations. Promises that guide us, that hold us. Is there a sincere desire to meet the needs of others? Not just your own needs and not just to make yourself feel better, but because you feel compelled to care for them. Even in enemies or strangers. Is, is our hope merely in this life or is it fixed on things above? Can you resonate with, with what the sugar boiler said? Is there an ambition to be faithful to Christ above all else? And if so, rejoice. Be at peace. Because that's evidence of a powerful transformation in your life. No longer be troubled by the fiery darts of doubt. But if not, you need to ask the question, why? Now, it may be because you've never been saved. It may also be that there's hindrances to your faithfulness that you haven't sought to put to death. What we call idolatries, little idols that are that are like weeds choking out the fruit of the gospel. Those weeds need to be removed. Have you allowed the fear of man and loss in this life to quench your confidence in the gospel? Or again, has the word never taken root? Has it just been what you've grown up believing? What you've decided to conform to because that's what your parents did. That's what your spouse did. And you just decided to go along with it because there was no better thing that you could think of. You wanted, you wanted what's best for your kids, so you decided to go to church. What should you do if this is the case? Well, I think you need to first recognize that the gospel is not just an idea. It's not just some truth to believe. It's the power of God. Romans 1.16 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Right? The gospel wields the same power that rose Christ from the dead. The message of the gospel is power, and it is power to save for everyone. And so first of all, you need to recognize, have you experienced that power? Or is it just ideas? Truths that you believe. Recognize that in light of that, that it is still available. It is still offered to everyone who believes. If you have yet to experience the transformative power of the gospel, what should you do? Believe. Because it's available to everyone. That power is available to everyone who would believe. Let's pray. Lord, again, if there is anybody here who is yet to taste and see that you are good, to experience the powerful work of regeneration that would lead them to no longer live for themselves, but for you. I pray that today, this moment, would be the moment of their salvation. And Lord, if, if others are here who have genuinely been transformed and yet they're plagued by various sins and distractions, that you would help them to see what is it that's quenching the gospel's fruitfulness in their life. And for those who are being unnecessarily tempted by doubt, by the fiery darts of Satan, that you would quench those darts by helping them see the clear evidence of the gospel's transformative work in their life. And so that they would be at peace. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.